0: I wonder if you've ever had that experience when you're sitting down to watch something on TV, perhaps with some others, and whatever it might be, um, some kind of series where there are there are different episodes. Maybe you're watching it on catch up. The old days, um, you might have just turned on the TV to see what was on, and uh, you're not quite sure whether it's a whether it's a repeat or something which you're seeing for the first time. You know, maybe it's Downton Abbey, maybe it's Antiques Roadshow. I don't know. And you just have that dawning realization, and you turn to the person on the sofa next to you and say. I think we might have seen this one before. And maybe that's what you feel as, as we come to this account of Jesus' crucifixion today in Luke chapter 23. Um, I would love you for a few minutes just to keep it open in front of you, if you would, on, on page 1060. Um, we have seen this one before, haven't we? Uh, if there's any part of the Bible that we've seen before, it must be this one. Um, we've read it, we've heard it many, many times. Usually in April perhaps rather than August, but there you go but as we approach these central events in the story of Jesus of the of a Christian faith, um, you know unlike an episode of something uh, on Disney plus or BBC one, there is always something new to discover uh, something which the Lord wants to say to us, uh, even if it's something which we can say. Yes, I've read this one before. It's been my experience this week in reflecting on these verses, and I hope it is yours as we tune into them just for a few minutes today. Um, If you have been here in the last few weeks, don't worry if you haven't, um, but uh, through Luke 22 and 23, uh, we've seen, haven't we, that one of the key themes has been the issue of authority, of who is in control. And we've seen it in the actions of characters like Judas and the religious leaders trying to seize control of the situation. Again, we saw it, Last week in the trial of Jesus, where no one was able to pin a charge on him until he pinned one on himself for them. And as Tom put it in his sermon, the rejected king is in charge. And one of the things that follows from understanding this is that in everything that is going on in these famous events, we should listen particularly carefully to the things that Jesus himself says. Because it's become clearer and clearer that he is driving everything here. So when he speaks, it will reveal a lot about what is at the heart of these matters. And in these verses today, as we get literally to the crux of things, Jesus says three different things. Have you noticed that as Jenny was reading the words for us? Three different things about what he's doing and about what is going to happen. Um, They're about a reckoning. They're also about forgiveness. And they are about a hope. So let's start with the first one. First of all, he speaks about a reckoning, looking at verses 26 to 31. Scene one of today's account, the trial is over, Barabbas has been freed, Jesus is handed over, In verse 26, they lead him away to the execution site outside the city. This guy, Simon, from Cyrene, uh, who's visiting Jerusalem, is forced to carry Jesus' cross, most likely Jesus cannot manage to carry it himself at this point after the way he has been treated. It's too heavy. He's too weak. But whatever the reason, it's a powerful image, isn't it, of this man following Jesus, walking behind him, as Luke tells us, carrying a cross, given all that Jesus has said about what it looks like to follow him. Uh, There's a big crowd, verse 27, and it includes mourners, especially this group of women who are crying out, wailing in grief as he goes. And it's to these women that Jesus speaks, first of all, the first of the three things that he says. And what he says are, well, they're kind of his final words of prophecy before he dies. Verse 28, daughters of Jerusalem, he says, do not weep for me, weep for yourselves and for your children. He's saying your mourning is misdirected. Don't cry for me, you should be crying for what is going to happen to you. Sounds a bit ominous, doesn't it? For the time will come when you will say, blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Jesus is saying things are going to get so bad it would be better not to have had any children. And remember, this is in a culture where children are universally regarded as a vital sign of God's blessing. To not have children is a terrible thing. And then quoting Hosea, Jesus goes on, they will say to the mountains, fall on us and the hills cover us. That's how bad it's going to be. And it's clear that Jesus is once again looking ahead to the calamity and the terror that is coming Um, in the near distance to what will happen in a few years' time in AD 17. He spoke of it in chapter 21 uh, as the city will be sacked by the Romans and it will be a catastrophe. Uh, The Jewish historian Josephus uh, describes. Thousands being crucified at that time in and around Jerusalem. But he's also looking ahead beyond that to a further horizon, giving a warning to the people, not only there with him then, but to those yet to come. And to round the point home, Jesus adds, for if people do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? I don't know if you've ever tried to start a fire with green wood. Uh, uh, it's not very successful, is it? Or it's hard work at the very least, because it's... um." Too much moisture in it, isn't there? It's live. It's, it's full of sap. It doesn't burn well at all. What you need is dry wood. And then all it takes is a spark, isn't it? And, and up it goes. And you've got a fire. The green wood is Jesus. The dry wood is Jerusalem. Um, if you think this situation is bad, wait till you see what is coming. Now the question here is, who are the people in what Jesus says? So the ones who do these things to the green wood. In fact, literally, it doesn't say people, it just says they. The people's kind of been um, added in the English there. Uh, There's different possible explanations. The most likely one is probably that it's God. And it's kind of a, a roundabout way of Jesus saying God. His point being that if God is judging his own son here for the sake of forgiveness, which we'll come to in a moment, then what will God's judgment look like on those who reject his offer, continue to do that? If it's possible to consume even the live wood, the green wood, think what a similar fire will do to wood which is seasoned and dry. Wood which has rejected God for years. It's ready for judgment. That's, I think, the most likely way of understanding this. Uh, the alternative is that the they who do this mean the nation itself, the people. In which case Jesus is, is making, a not dissimilar similar point, but in, in a different way, from a different angle. He's saying that the tragedy is not his death, caused by the people's failure to believe in him, their rejection of him, the tragedy is the ongoing failure to believe, which will mean that they have no prospect of rescue from the judgment that is coming. A failure with grave consequences. Either way, we we read the specifics of that sentence. Jesus' point is, there's going to be a reckoning. That's Jesus' message. And the worst of it is about what happens for those who continue to reject him, and especially to reject his offer to face the reckoning on our behalf, whether that is in 1st century Jerusalem or 21st century Leicester. Do not weep for me, Jesus says. Weep for yourselves. The question we always need to ask ourselves is, can we stand before a holy God with confidence when he comes in glory? Can we defend ourselves? And the answer that we've seen repeatedly in the life of Jesus is that surely we can't do that. None of us can. Even his closest friends, even Peter, couldn't do that. And so what do we do when there's a day of reckoning? Our only hope is in the one who offers us an alternative and a rescue. That brings us to the second thing that Jesus says here. The first thing is about reckoning. He then speaks about forgiveness in verses 32 to 38. Scene 2. The walk to the place is over. They reach it and Jesus is executed. Luke doesn't really give us the details, does he? Just that there are three of them, two criminals and Jesus. Verse 32, and at this place called the skull they're crucified. One on each side of him. Um, If you know your Old Testament, there are echoes of Isaiah chapter 53 all over what is happening here. Um, It's that famous passage where... Isaiah speaks of the suffering servant of the Lord and what he will do. And one of the things Isaiah says is that he will will be numbered with the transgressors. And here is Jesus hung up with these convicted criminals. The innocent with the guilty. They're still mocking and taunting Jesus, aren't they? If you look at verses 35 and 36. He's offered wine vinegar to drink. John in his gospel tells us that it's on a soaked sponge on the end of a stick of hyssop. And if you were at our ignition service last Sunday evening, you will know why that stick of hyssop is so significant. And written above him, verse 38, is the notice, this is the king of the Jews. Sometimes you drive down a road, don't you, and you see um, they put up signs on the road, and it says something like, 85 accidents here in the last 10 years. Or, you know, 437 speeding convictions in 2023, or whatever it is. Why are those signs there? Why have they been put up? I mean, they're to act as a deterrent, aren't they? They're, they're basically saying, don't make the mistake all these other people made on this road. It was common to write a public notice uh, of the crucified person's crime for exactly the same reasons, essentially. That's why he's here. Don't do the same, or this is what will happen to you. That's what the sign means. Well, the sign above Jesus' head is probably something of an unusual one, isn't it? But it's still pretty clear. Rome will only accept one emperor, one king. Don't think about trying it. Maybe there's also an element of Pontius Pilate justifying himself here too, if we think back. Um, He's condemned an innocent man. It seems he knows he's done that. Well, here's the official charge. He's being executed as a political rebel the leader of an insurrection who claimed to be king of the jews can't have that now, of course there's a deep irony here isn't there this trumped up charge which pilate sticks on a sign and displays in public is actually true and again as you may recall in john's gospel we get the extra detail that the religious leaders objected to pilate putting that sign above the cross and tried to get him to change it to say this man claimed to be the king of the Jews, but Pilate is having in n- n- none of it. Maybe he's just had enough of being manipulated by the religious leaders, I don't know. But whatever his reasons, he states what is true. And very quickly, this basis for Jesus' execution by the Romans also becomes a confession of faith for the early Christians, and it's remained that through the centuries, hasn't it? We say Jesus is king, and he will return to claim his kingdom. In their mocking, look, the people sneer, verse 35. If he is God's Messiah, which just means chosen king, then let him save himself. The soldiers do exactly the same in verse 36. If you are the king, save yourselves. What none of them understand is this. Because Jesus is the king, he doesn't save himself because he's doing something greater. He's here to save others. And we see this in the second thing that Jesus says. The only words that Jesus says in the midst of this bit, back there in verse 34, as he is nailed to the cross, those famous haunting words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. That's what the king has to say as he willingly goes to his death. Even as he's being tortured, mocked and killed, Jesus extends forgiveness to his tormentors. He taught his disciples to love their enemies, didn't he? He didn't teach anything that he was not prepared to do himself right at the most extreme moment of his life. Jesus is amazing, isn't he? And again, it's an Isaiah 53 moment. That same chapter, Isaiah 53 verse 12, speaking of God's suffering servant, says, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. That's what's happening here. God's judgment on the sin of the world, on your sin and on my sin, is falling on Jesus so that we need not face that reckoning that otherwise we would. The one he spoke of in 28-32 to when the fire falls on the dry wood. He bears the sin of many, of every person who accepts his offer of rescue. And he prays for those who are killing him, that they might know the forgiveness he is dying to give. And that prayer, that offer of forgiveness, still stands. We need have no fear. We need have no question about whether it counts or not. There is still time to say yes to it, to say yes to him. And so finally, in those closing verses, the third thing that Jesus speaks of here is hope. Scene three, after his words of warning, after his prayer for forgiveness, now in many ways, Well, what he says to his crucified companion here is one of the most stunning things that Jesus says in the whole Bible, isn't it? Matthew tells us that the two robbers started off by joining in the soldiers and the crowds in mocking Jesus, and we see it from one of them here, don't we, in verse 39. Aren't you the anointed king? Save yourself and us. But then in verse 40, whatever the other criminal had previously thought and done and said, There seems to be something of a change of heart that takes place, doesn't there? And it leads to this bold request. He rebukes the other robber. He notes in verse 41 that what's happening to them is just. Harsh, maybe, but it's the law. They've been tried for what they've done. But Jesus is innocent. He has done no wrong. Somehow there's a dawning realisation, isn't there, in this, this unnamed thief? That Jesus isn't just wrongly accused, that he really is different. Royal, even, this man from God. And so he makes this audacious request, doesn't he? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Who knows what has taken place inside this man? Uh, In the midst of the terror and pain of his execution, he's rapidly approaching the end of his life, isn't he? It's, a, it's an unimaginable situation for us. Maybe he has heard Jesus' previous words, his warnings of judgment and his prayer to the Father for forgiveness for his accusers, and, and that's what has landed with him. I don't know. But for whatever reason, he stops fearing the crowd and he starts fearing God, doesn't he? Which the Bible tells us is the beginning of wisdom. Whatever it is, he places his life, such as it now is, not much of it left, into the hands of Jesus. Somewhere in these words, there is a grain of faith, isn't there? However small it may be. And Jesus replies, Amen. That's the word translated here in verse 43 in our version just truly. Literally, it's Amen. Yes, I'm with you. Let it be so. Quite right. That's the first word Jesus speaks back to him, hanging there on the cross straight away. It might not be what many people would expect to hear from Jesus at this point. After all of these wasted years, these missed opportunities this thief has had to respond to God's call, here he is, literally at the last moment. Some people might imagine a response from Jesus more like, don't you think it's a bit late for you to be thinking about my kingdom now? But that's not Jesus' way, is it? There's this little book by someone called Colin Smith called Heaven, how I got here. And it's an, it's an imagined retelling of the story of this thief on the cross next to Jesus. It's told from the thief's perspective, from the perspective of heaven, looking back on what happened on that Friday. Uh, from the perspective of heaven, which is where he now finds himself, on the basis of this short conversation with Jesus. And Smith writes in this book, from the position of the thief, Jesus did not place me on probation. He did not send me on a long spiritual journey or tell me to wait and see. Instead, joyfully, he accepted my prayer and took his stand with me as I took my stand with him. Amen, says Jesus. Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Maybe the thief imagined when he made his request that maybe there was some hope for the distant future. But it's today, Jesus says, it's immediate. There's no need to worry about Jesus remembering. This is what's going to happen to him in just a very short time. Sometimes Christians ask me, I guess it's something you get as vicars sometimes, what will happen to me when I die? Maybe you've heard people ask that question, or maybe it's a question you have asked yourselves. It's a good question, isn't it? An important one. And the answer implied by Jesus here is that For the believer who dies, even while we wait for his promised return and the resurrection of the dead, for friends of Jesus, death is an immediate translation into the joys of life at the right hand of God. It's today, and it's you. He says to this thief, you will be with me in paradise. In other words, heaven is not for special people who've lived lives of holiness and sacrifice. It's for hopeless people. And none more so than this thief who has got nothing left, absolutely nothing to offer Jesus, does he? But himself. And this is what he gets in return. Today you will be with me in paradise. Because in the end, that's what paradise is all about. The story of the Bible begins with the very first humans in the opening chapters of Genesis being cast out of God's presence because they reject him. Here at the cross... That separation between people and God is reversed. And this man is promised the presence of Jesus the King. In the book, Smith says, the voice of the thief, and so it was. I was Jesus' last companion on earth and his first companion in heaven. I'm still amazed that he would choose me as the first. I expect the angels were astonished too. Though they should know by now that Jesus chooses some surprising friends. What a privilege to be a surprising friend of Jesus, eh? That's what he does. It's what he still does. All we have to do is ask him to say that prayer with faith to Jesus. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Maybe there's someone who needs to do that today. Maybe there is someone who just needs to be encouraged that we know the answer that Jesus gives. Because if you have done that, whether it's recently or long ago, then know that whatever our lives on earth still hold, uh, for all of us here we assume it holds a bit more than it did for that thief hanging on the cross, know that the promise of Jesus for you is just the same. And so we can live lives with confidence in him now. Um, Sometimes life will be tough, we know that, don't we? Won't be easy, but we live them in the light of that unshakable and unconditional promise. You will be with me in paradise. Let's pray before we sing. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that even as you were going to the cross, even as you were being executed, you were still warning the people, offering forgiveness. And most of all, promising hope to everyone who asks you. And so we pray once again that you would strengthen our hearts to trust in you and to know that you are with us and will be with us, whatever else may happen. For we ask it in your name. Amen. Amen.